This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. You know, we've got a lot of really big concerts coming up in town later this year, but, you know, good luck getting tickets for any of them because you know what happens every single time. Tickets sell out in minutes. People are going, wait a minute, I was all ready to do this. How? How did I not get a ticket? Well, because we always get the ticket bots that come in. We get ticket scalpers that come in. Moments later, those same tickets are always available on some secondary website. And people get so frustrated by that. Many jurisdictions have tried to do something about ticket scalping and ticket bots. Looks like BC, though, this morning, taking its turn at this. The BC government has just introduced new legislation to ban ticket scalping bots, ban ticket bots, period, so no mass buying of tickets, and to force secondary sellers to provide refund guarantees in certain conditions and to guarantee that ticket prices are clearly displayed as well as any conditions. It's a big step for BC to go in this direction. So we're asking you for our hot question of the day. Do you think this will help you buy a ticket for your favorite concert? Do you think yes, long last something's being done or do you think no just ban all scalping like what is the way to go on this you can email me simi at cknw.com use our buzz line 604-331-BUZZ 331-2899 and if you're online on twitter go to simi sarah 980 or you can go to at cknw and cast your vote so if this becomes law do you think it means that you'll be able to now buy a ticket for your favorite concert Cast your vote. A lot of good concerts coming to town this year. Ariana Grande, Michael Buble, Paul McCartney, Elton John, Kansas, if that's your thing, The Who, Sean Mendes. But, you know, good luck trying to get tickets for any of those, right? Uh, that's always been a huge problem is trying to get tickets before all of a sudden they show up on the secondary market somewhere and the prices are way higher. Well, the provincial government had been talking for some time about doing something about this. And this morning, they have tabled legislation to try and tackle this problem. Uh, But legislation will do things like um, guarantee refunds from secondary sellers in certain situations, ban ticket bots, and ensure that ticket prices are clearly displayed as well as any conditions that may apply to. But we wanted to talk a little bit more about this, get more of an explanation of what is in this legislation and what it means. So joining us now is Global News online legislative reporter Richard Zussman. Hi, Richard. Hey, Simi. Okay, so what do we know about this? What does it mean? All right, so it means a bunch of different things in terms of cracking down. Let's start with ticket bots. So this is one of these things where if you're familiar with the way this industry works is that these ticket bots often operate... Uh, for these big reselling online companies, uh, they buy up tickets that they believe will be in demand from all over the world, uh, and they can buy tickets online much faster than you and I could. So imagine, you know, you really want a ticket to go to one of those concerts. Let's say Kansas is your thing, as you said, um, and you sit down with your laptop. I think there's tickets still available for Kansas, Richard. <laughs> if you sit down with your laptop or your phone and you want to, you know, and you have your best friend doing it too, and you're all doing it, let's say you have six six computers going, 
Uh, you can't compete with the thousands and thousands and thousands of computers that these bots basically are replicating. So these computers churn through so quickly that they can click buy faster than you ever could as a human being. And that allows them to buy up tickets before they're even available online. And that's why in some cases, like a pink concert, you may see the best tickets sell out in a minute uh, because there is such high demand. So banning ticket bots, one thing. There are problems with that, though, because... Because these companies are international and they work offshore, it's unclear whether the BC government can actually crack down on it. Yeah. Uh, so that is one of the things that uh, we'll need more explanation from, from Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth. And then there are some other consumer action things here. One of the things that stood out to me, and I'm, I'm super fascinated with this issue, is a lot of these reselling uh, companies have now started... Uh, advertising tickets that they don't even have yeah, themselves. I've seen so that they, too. Yeah, they speculate, right? So, and you see this in huge events like the Super Bowl and NCAA basketball tournament. And what happens is they're guessing they're going to be able to get tickets, sell them to people. And if they never get the tickets on, well, the buyer is left empty handed. We've had some cases of that uh, here in uh, British Columbia, and this legislation would ban it. Uh, you know, there are some really substantial fines for corporations, $100,000 a day for non-compliance, $10,000 a day uh, for uh, individuals who break these rules. So those fines are substantial. Again, we're going to have to get more clarity on the enforcement, but that's a really interesting one. Is yeah. These uh, ticket resellers can't sell tickets they don't actually physically have. And then there's other ones that will help provide uh, some sort of certainty to people around uh, guarantees and potential potentially refunds from secondary sellers under circum certain circumstances, clear and prominent disclosure of prices, disclosure of terms and conditions, you know, what you can and can't do with your ticket, those sort of things. So, um, and ticket resellers must disclose they are secondary sellers, which online now, because all these lit, uh, websites look similar, um, is an important factor as well. Right. Okay. So what, what doesn't this legislation right. cover? So two big things here, and these are really, really big things. The first, one of the most popular things in the public consultation the province did was a cap on prices. So saying that, you know, a, a ticket reseller can only sell a Canuck Stanley Cup ticket for, let's say, $1,000. Well, I think ultimately the province came to the fact that that would be a big restriction on the open market. Yeah. They're not trying to crack down on high demand, they're just trying to crack down on people actually having a reasonable chance to get the tickets. So the province decided not to put a cap. The other one that I think is more important here, and I just spoke to Kingsley Bailey from VancouverTickets.com. He is a well-known, well-respected ticket reseller in Vancouver, plays by the book. Uh, he actually uh, put together some ideas for the province that helped shape this legislation. He says the one thing it doesn't address is uh, ticket companies like Ticketmaster actually don't make a lot of their tickets available to the public. And instead, they show up on their premium reselling yeah. website, one that Ticketmaster owns. Kingsley told me this morning he believes that only about 30% of tickets for major events are actually available to the public. The rest are already given out to sponsors, to family, and also 
put aside by Ticketmaster to resell. That's a major problem. And uh, one of the things that Bailey had been calling for is to have a disclosure of how many tickets are actually available uh, and where the other tickets have gone. That's not in the legislation either. And I think that's a major um, problem with this legislation. You know, we're still just sieving through the document, but if that's not addressed, you're still not addressing that core idea of tickets actually being available for the public to go and have a fair chance uh, at getting right. a ticket at the uh, at the face value price. You know as well as I do, Richard, too, like when you try to buy these tickets, there's all these pre-sales, right? right? There'll be like three, four, five pre-sales before the tickets go on sale to the public, so there's no tickets left by the time the public gets them. Yeah, and often those pre-sales come with having to have a certain credit card or yeah. having to be part of a certain fan club that you may have to pay for. I think the legislation, you know, and often... Uh, companies do that you know a a credit card company will team up with an artist to do that and it's beneficial for both of them Uh, i i think that was one of those issues that was avoided as well but i think the public wants clarity around how many tickets are actually available yeah i think the point that you hit is doesn't get addressed in this legislation you know when you want it you know that rogers arena fits eighteen thousand people you want to know how many of those tickets are actually available so you can have a fighting chance when you want to see that show or or the the sporting event or whatever it is at rogers arena what about pricing then does it like the fact that like you you look at one price and then by the time you get to the end the price is completely different yeah so that's also not addressed here that's often um a nature of these companies like a company like stubhub which is the best known online ticket reseller in the world they will often place these service fees and for a company like that they they list in US dollars so now that we're looking at the Canadian dollar quite far behind the US dollar for a Canadian buyer looking at a ticket on StubHub you can be left with a really unpleasant surprise when you get your credit card bill when you factor in the exchange rate plus all these other fees that are tacked on um, there are other sites that are now regulating themselves and providing the price up front before you get to the you know pay now button that shows right. you all the different fees that's not addressed in the legislation either I think that would have been much harder for the legislation to address considering but I think this government is trying to provide as much information but I think again you're right that it falls short in a sense that people want to see actually what they're going to pay you know and I think one of the craziest things too has long been just the the administration fee that Ticketmaster pays or or these other companies like I went to buy tickets I'm going to see the Victoria Royals play the Vancouver Giants on Thursday and that just by buying the ticket at the box office the ticket was $19 and I paid a $3 service charge you know it's it's one of those things that drives people crazy because who does that service charge go to why not just charge me $22 exactly and you guys can figure out to send the $3 to whoever runs the software to sell the tickets. I think that service charge drives people crazy. Wasn't something that was addressed in the legislation either. I think there's still lots of problems with ticket pricing. I think we're slightly closer to getting to a point where people can feel they can actually get tickets. But newsflash, it's still going to be very hard and very expensive to get tickets to the biggest shows in Vancouver. And this legislation won't save you any money uh, if the Canucks end up in a Stanley Cup at some point in the next 50 years, let's say, Simi. 50. I like the way you really <laughs> left that a big window. Richard, thank you for your time on yeah, that. Yeah, thanks, Simi. <laughs> that is Richard Zesman, our Global News online legislative reporter, talking about this ticket scalping legislation. Well, we've been talking about social media companies and their belated efforts to try and crack down on some of the controversial content that you see on their sites. 
like the New Zealand shooting of 50 people, which was live streamed on Facebook before eventually being shut down. But even after that, there were more than a million attempts to try to upload that same video onto websites like YouTube and Facebook, and they had to try to shut that all down. The people who do that are called content moderators, and that is not an easy job. Just think for a moment about all the things they have to see before they pull that stuff off of the internet. Let's meet someone who used to do this for a living and find out what it was like. Chris Gray is a former content moderator who worked at Facebook International Headquarters in Dublin, Ireland. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Simi. Tell me, what was your job like? Like, what did you do every day? Well, you'd come in. I was on the evening shift, so I would start work at 5.30. And the first thing is just to go through all of the discussions and queries and updates that have come in during the day where people have been discussing uh, trending topics or difficult content that they've encountered. And then you just jump straight in. You press a button marked just go and your screen just flashes up with the first thing that you have to work on. And what was that like? What, what, What kind of things did you see? Well, nine out of 10, it's just tedious, boring stuff. You know, you can imagine some family have had a family squabble and everybody's reporting everybody else. And you you just have to go through it and try not to get too depressed at the states of their lives and just decide what has to be taken down. And then you get the not such nice stuff, you know, the really, the really brutal, disturbing content as well. And is that something that you saw on a regular basis? Yeah, it would be about 10, maybe 20% of the work that we do would be stuff that really should not be there and needs to be taken down. Can you give us an idea of what kind of stuff? Uh, do you really want me to? I mean, it's no. horrible. It's all the worst things that you can imagine human beings doing to each other or to animals. So you know, murders, torture, uh, animal cruelty, child abuse threats of violence, nasty, racist, hatreds, uh, hate, nasty, racist, hatred, uh, self-harm, people committing suicide even. I mean, just everything oh. that you would rather not ever imagine would be on Facebook. But Chris, that must take a toll on people like you who do that job to have to see that kind of stuff day after day. What does it do to a person? Well, it's, I mean, when you're doing it, it's like, a, you know, you think you're watching a horror movie or, or a documentary or something. You know, you're just working through it, but it starts to kind of build up inside you. And I stopped nearly a year ago and I thought that I was fine. But just very recently, I've, I've started talking to people and finding that I, I get really upset, and really stressed about it. I actually cried at my doctor's surgery last week. So, you know, it, it affects you in ways that you don't really expect or don't anticipate do you, is it fair to say that you probably have PTSD? My doctor says I, I don't believe in these modern diseases, but apparently that's denial. You know, that's another symptom. So, yeah, my doctor says that I have PTSD and there's a lot of other people coming forward whose symptoms are much worse than mine. You know, people that have been on anxiety medication for six months or 12 months, people that have been off work for a long time, people that have uh, panic attacks at work. So, yeah, we're all kind of gathering together now. We've uh, teamed up with a lawyer, so we're going to push to see what we can get Facebook to do about this. Is what they're doing, is what these companies are doing, is it adequate, do you think, to stem the tide of, of what is out there? Are they doing enough? They're doing enough to protect society. I don't know if you can ever do enough. And interestingly, you know, just last week, Mark Zuckerberg came to Dublin and sat down with a bunch of uh, our elected representatives to discuss how Facebook can be more regulated and how government can take control of this, which I think 
you know, is it going to be a nightmare for the regulators? He's really trying to push the responsibility over to somebody else because he's realized that they can't do it. It's just too big. It's it's too big a job. It's it's a huge, never ending nightmare. And does it need human eyes? You know what I mean? Like they're oh, oh, they pride themselves on algorithms. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I know they are trying to develop artificial intelligence, but that intelligence has to be programmed or trained using the decisions that we've made. And they, these can be incredibly nuanced. You know, the placement of a comma or just the background context to what somebody is saying can change the, the meaning of it, can change whether we consider it violating or not, because you have to be consistent in your decision making. So you need very strict rules that you have to follow. And applying those rules evenly then just becomes a, a matter of kind of judgment and nuance sometimes. So how did something show up on a screen in front of you then, Chris? Was it something that got flagged? Was it something that, you know, came up because Facebook alerted you? Or how did that work? Yeah, normally we don't go out proactively looking for anything. You as a user would have to say, oh, I don't like that. And you press the button and you, you report it. And then it goes into a queue and then it shows up on my desk. That seems like a pretty big loophole, doesn't it? In what way? Well, it just seems like unless somebody flags it, you know, if it doesn't get flagged, well, do that want, stuff is still up there. Do you want Facebook monitoring everything that you say and do and immediately responding and deciding whether you can do that? You know, is are these social media companies the right people to be censoring you? Or is the government, for that matter? Do you think this has gotten away from these companies, like from what their original intention was for the world they wanted to create versus what's actually happening? Absolutely. I feel really sorry for Mark Zuckerberg. He had this great idea while he was in college. He built this thing that everybody loved and it really seemed to be doing great things in the world. And now it's been, you know, it's kind of hijacked by the worst elements of humanity. What is the way, do you think, Chris, to fix this? What could they be doing better? <laughs> I would rewrite all the rules, first really? off, because the rules have grown up over, I would say, about 10 years in response to different situations, very ad hoc, very unstructured. It's not really coherent. It often You'll often find that one rule contradicts another rule, and that's just the way that the thing has grown up. So I would start again with a top-level view, figure out what it is that we're trying to achieve and how to make... Uh, policy that can be enforced. A lot of the problem we had was that the policy was written by lawyers to, seems like it was written to protect Facebook from um, from criticism rather than to make our lives easy, to make the, make the job doable. Right. So do you think they should start all over again from the top down and take a look at really what their mission is here? Yeah. I mean, nobody's ever defined the mission. Nobody's ever said what the purpose of of this uh, moderation is. It's always just we'll add a few more people because another government is complaining. And yeah, you really do need to work with the regulators and with the politicians and with the general public and reach an agreement about what can be done and what can't. But then, of course, you need different rules in different countries, different cultures. Are there enough people actually doing the job that you were doing before? Like, does Facebook employ enough content moderators? Well, I mean, we certainly were under the pump all the time. There was always a tailback, you know, a backlog of stuff that had to be done. There was always work waiting for us to come around and pay attention to it. So you could probably get more people in, but this is all money, isn't it? And we're not highly paid. It's very, it's a very low paid job because it costs a lot of money to have somebody processing this stuff. So, you know, who's going to volunteer, especially now that word is getting out about what a terrible job it is? Well, would, would you take a really stressful 
very high skilled job, even though it's very important, you know that all you're going to get is criticism at the end of the day, if you were being paid twelve ninety eight an hour. No, I can't see that happening. You're right. Uh, they definitely need to rethink what they're doing. Listen, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Thank you, Simi. That's Chris Gray, a former content moderator who worked at Facebook's international headquarters in Dublin, Ireland. Have you ever had one of those times when you're, you know, let's say driving home from work, right? And it's the same thing. You do it all the time. It's the same routine, same route that you always take. And then you pull up at home and you don't really remember the drive. Like you don't remember. I, this used to happen to me all the time when I was driving home. I'd get home and I'd go, did I go through the tunnel? Like I'm, I don't actually remember going through the tunnel, but I must have. Well, it's because your brain was on autopilot and it happens all the time, but it is a bit disconcerting though, isn't it? Well, that's an example of what your subconscious brain can do. And apparently there is much more than that. Dr. Mike Dow has written a new book. It's called Your Subconscious Brain Can Change Your Life. And he joins us now to talk more about it. Dr. Dow, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. What made you want to write this? Well, I went to my first hip, uh, clinical hypnosis training, and I was trained by this very lovely uh, pair of physician and a dentist who are experts in medical hypnosis. And I wasn't really that much of a believer until I had to experience, or experience it for myself, and I fell into this deep and wondrous trance. And I have to tell you, from that moment, I was a hardcore believer. I read every study, every book, went to every single training, and I knew that I had to share this information with the world. I created my own protocol um, that I have in this book, Your Subconscious Brain Can Change Your Life, to help people with both psychological and physical goals. Okay, medical hypnosis. Is that really a thing? It is, yeah. So, you know, hypnosis really used to be uh, sort of uh, only in the medical world. And, you know, of course, now there's Las Vegas and all these other things. But, yeah. you know, hypnosis is remarkably effective. Before we had modern anesthesia, hypnosis was what we had for anesthesia. You know, it, it was what a lot of OBGYNs would use. And, you know, but by the way, it's still remarkably effective for pain relief. Uh, a lot of women are now turning to hypnobirthing because it can make childbirth more comfortable. If you have a bad back, shoulder tension, it can really help you and you can use, you can learn to use the powers of your mind to heal the body or sometimes reprogram and rewire so that some things that are there um, are not registering. So hypnosis can create negative hallucinations. So if you have a bad back and you've had five back surgeries, wouldn't it be so nice and wonderful to just turn off that signal? And that's what the subconscious can do for you. Okay, well, wait a minute. If, if that's the case, then why don't we do this? Why, do, why hasn't this been happening more often? That's a great question. <laughs> and, that's, and that's why I wanted to write this book, you know, because I felt like a lot of people, when they hear hypnosis, they think of stage tricks and they think yes. of, you know, smoking cessation and that's it, you know. And, and, and hypnosis, by the way, is great for that. And I help people to do that all the time or weight loss. Um, but it can do so much more. You know, we know that hypnosis in, in study after study is more effective than prescription medication in treating irritable bowel syndrome. It's, uh, it's more effective than medication in treating migraines. So there's a lot of conditions that people really suffer with. And hypnosis can really help. And we're really starting to see a lot of the research in these uh, respected journals starting to pop up. And, you know, the New York Times has been covering hypnosis a lot. And, you know, you're going to find a, uh, a way to use it and the way that you can tap into it um, in my book. So I hope people uh, really enjoy it and, and feel less pain and, uh, you know, build businesses of their dreams or, you know, overcome their panic attacks, you know, whatever it is that you might be searching for. You're making it, you're really building it up here, Dr. Dow. You're making it seem like the be-all, end-all. How easy is this? Like, what does this involve? 
Well, it's, it's really uh, quite easy to learn how to activate the subconscious. So, you know, my technique, uh, unlike other techniques, um, you know, I combine cognitive behavioral tools with the subconscious, bilateral stimulation, and guided visualization. And I put that all in one sort of uh, tool that I call SVT or subconscious visualization technique. So it really is marrying this old school, uh, tried and true cognitive behavioral therapy modality with hypnosis. So, you know, in terms of building it up, what I'm doing is I'm sort of combining these two very effective strategies. And that's why I've had so much success in my private practice with it. You know, I've I've treated um, thousands of patients with it now. And I've just seen, um, you know, by the way, I used to be strict cognitive behavioral therapy, very sort of left brain, rational uh, sort of a, a therapist in my practice. I worked for the Department of Mental Health in Los Angeles. Uh, and then when I started to add hypnosis, I started to see that people were getting so much better so much more quickly. Um, so I, I think it is, um, you know, sort of magical and miraculous. And in fact, when you open the cover of my book, you're going to see my brain on my protocol. So you'll see what my brain looks like normally, and you'll see an EEG and also a SPECT scan, and you'll see how I can actually change blood flow and activity as well as my brain waves, which sort of explains all this, quote, magic. Um, but I, you know, I often say it's not magic, it's science. Um, and we know that the way that hypnosis can connect and disconnect different brain structures like the insula and the prefrontal cortex is why it can make changes in the body or why it can help you to overcome a phobia. So it, there really is sort of a, a scientific reason of how it helps people to make these uh, really incredible changes. Okay, when it comes to that issue then, like it's perhaps the subconscious brain at work every day and we just didn't, don't even notice perhaps or we don't realize it? Absolutely, yeah. I love that example you gave. So, you know, driving or anything that you've learned, so if you learned how to play the piano or play tennis, there was a time in your life when you had to learn it consciously and your conscious brain had to figure out where you were going to place that hand or that right index finger, right? And then after a while, you could actually move that skill down into the subconscious and you could sort of let the subconscious take over. Um, or the subconscious can sort of find a name for you. If there's somebody that you run into and you think, how did I know that person? I, knew, I, knew, I know I know that person from somewhere. Uh, but you can't consciously find it. But then voila, three hours later, uh, your subconscious delivers you the answer out of nowhere while you're, you know, taking a walk. That happens all the time. That happens to me all the time. Isn't that fascinating? So, so really what was going on, your subconscious was going through the memories uh, of your past, opening up all of those drawers, all of those filing cabinets until it found the memory for you. Um, and you weren't even aware of it. And so there are so many things that happen in our life. You know, the other example that I love, you know, when people say, I'm going to sleep on it to make a, a big decision. Yeah, I do that all well, what, the time. What, what, what happens when we sleep? Well, we pass through alpha brain waves into theta and down into delta. Uh, and then when we dream, we're in theta brain waves. Well, guess what? Theta brain waves are the same brain waves you will see on my EEG. They're the brain waves of hypnosis. So basically, when you're in hypnosis, you are, uh, you are awake and you're dreaming, and you can control what you're dreaming about. So it's, it's really sort of interesting because we also know that dreams have health benefits. 
Uh, we know that people who don't dream are more likely to develop PTSD, for example. So there, there's something to be said about this wondrous theta brainwave state. Uh, and, and maybe it's not just, uh, you know, a, a, a show that makes people bark like dogs. Maybe <laughs> it's something that we all actually already use. You're in the theta brainwave state every night when you sleep and dream at night. Um, but maybe we can learn how to use it in a way that could benefit us in some way. So you're talking about essentially like pre-programming yourself. Yeah, yeah. Pre-programming yourself, rewiring yourself. You know, so many things become, you know, and let's also look at unhealthy things. So if you smoke a cigarette, on some level, you are no longer consciously thinking about the decision to smoke a cigarette. You are now smoking 30 cigarettes a day. So it sort of starts to happen on, much like driving, once you've driven a thousand times, it happens on a subconscious level. So we have to sort of go back and rewire things on a subconscious level. I think the same thing is true when I treat uh, patients struggling with anxiety or depression, their self-talk, the way that they talk to themselves on a subconscious level, those naysaying voices are so deeply rooted that we have to go back. And it's not just a conscious level. You know, in traditional CBT, we would say, okay, talk back to that negative thought that's telling you um, that catastrophic worry. Well, sometimes we have to go way deeper than that. And that programming that maybe came from our childhood or some uh, awful experience that happened to us, we don't even realize that that created a very subconscious level of programming in our brains. And with this with hypnosis and with this, this technique, we can go back and we can access it. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. To rewire it and reprogram ourselves. So fascinating. Dr. Dow, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. That's Dr. Mike Dow. He's a psychotherapist, best-selling author, and a brain health expert. Well, if you're like me, you love to talk about baby names, right? I have one of those names where my entire life I was explaining to people how to pronounce it, you know, that whole thing. It was just too much trouble. So I'm always fascinated by when these lists come out about what the most popular baby names are. And there's some lists out for 2019 so far. Let's find out what's on the list. Our contributor, Claire Allen, joins us now. Hi, Claire. Hello, Simeon. Now, why would you say you don't like your name? I just can't get a nickname out of Claire. There's nothing. There's no, like, shortened name. There's nothing. Oh, you know what? You're right. Yeah. So, it's just Claire Bear. No, that's not shortened. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't have a nickname at all when you were growing up. So, I have so many. Yeah, of course. Yeah. There's just... And Simi is actually the shortened version of my name already. Right. But there's so... And you already... You have nicknames for me too. So, like, it lends itself to nicknames, but you're saying your name does not. Yeah. And same... My brother's name is Quinn, and there's no... Unless you go by Q, but you can't... That's lame. Q, see? That's lame. So, I I always growing up wanted a name Uh that could be shortened into a nickname. Oh, the like things. Elizabeth, Liz, all, you know, Jackie, Jack. Let's be fair. Thirty years ago, when you were named Claire, that was a very popular name. It seemed. I don't. I don't know. I don't meet a lot of Claires. I know several Claires. Well, we could 
go back Claire and forth Foy, about this all day. Claire Newell, Claire Allen. That's, you can't use me as okay. the one person you know. Well, let's, let's talk about uh, Nameberry, which has their list out for the most popular baby names in 2019 so far. What do you like on this list? Well, I thought it was very interesting because the reason why we picked up the story is uh, the names that have topped the list are kind of, you know, quote unquote, unusual names. I think they're old fashioned names. I just think they're names we don't hear that much, maybe, or that we didn't hear babies being named in the past. So okay. Nameberry's top, uh, we'll just go through the, some of the top three names for the for girls. Isla, Olivia, maybe not that unconventional, and Aurora, like uh, Princess Aurora Sleeping from Beauty. Sleeping Beauty. My favorite. Yes. Really? My favorite princess. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> what about the boy ones? So the boys, we, I'm back, we were talking about how to pronounce this. Is it Milo or Milo? For I no- think it's Milo. I'm not, I don't know. I anyway, it's whatever you want. Jasper and Atticus are in the top three. So uh, very I like, nice. I do very like nice Jasper. Names. I think that's yeah. a great name. Exactly. And then there was another list, uh, which is names.org. They also just used the first three months of 2009 to compile the list. I mean 2019. Of, uh, sorry, 2019. Whoa. <laughs> uh, 2019 to, uh, to compile the uh, top names. They said there was, um, the reason why they were able to tabulate how, what was, like, how these names are so interesting is because there were 11 million page views Whoa. so far. Yeah, so names.org had Emma, Ava, and Olivia. And I thought Emma was kind of interesting because it's been in the top 10 for a long time. And it really, like, sparked, the interest kind of sparked yeah, after 2004 when Rachel and Friends had a baby girl named Emma. <laughs> well, tell us, what are they? Um, okay, if it's a boy, it's Daniel. And if it's a girl? I don't want to say. Oh, don't tell us. I'm not going to want it. Okay. Um, It's Emma. (gasps) Emma. (laughs) (laughs) See, I don't want it. Okay, that makes sense. That was like the early 2000s, Yeah, 2004. Yeah, no, that's when the show ended. Emma was already like a year old or two years old at that point. So I'm thinking early 2000s. There are so there were so many. My daughter's graduated from high school now. So many Emmas yes. in school. And it was ridiculous. They can directly attribute it to that moment in the show when Rachel and Ross named their daughter Emma. Wow, and Ava is also very popular. Yes, that's a very p- pretty name. Right. So names.org was Emma, Ava, and Olivia. There's yep. Olivia again. And what about for boys? And for boys, Liam, Noah, and Logan. And I have seen a lot of people my age that are having kids naming their sons Liam. So that is definitely correct. That's also been popular for a while now. Mm-hmm. You know, names are so, I find them so fascinating because I had an unusual name growing up and Every time, and my husband has an unusual name as well. And so, you know, we both share stories about you go to school. And for me, anyway, I could tell when a new teacher came to my name on the roll call because they just stopped. Right. And they would just look at it. Yeah. And then I had to put up my hand and say, me, that's, that's you know, I'm mm-hmm. here. Uh, but you probably never had that problem. No, everyone can pronounce Claire. But they also don't know how to spell it because there's like three different spellings. You're the C-L-A-I-R-E. Yeah, but there are other ways to spell it. And um, in my family, actually, on my mom's side, my grandma, when she had her four children, she decided she wanted to give each one of them a name that couldn't be misspelled or mispronounced. So she did that. And everyone seemed to have followed the same sort of notion. But now everyone's names are boring, in my opinion. I want something cool. So today in the producer pit, Chris Brentlinger Grant told us that someone named their kid E-L-A. And they want it to... is pronounced El Dasha. It's not. 
It's true. That's not true. It's it horrible. Be. That's horrible. <laughs> it is horrible. That poor child is going to have to explain that name for the rest of its life. Uh, Anne just tweeted me and said, baby names. Our grandson is Mordecai Ooh. and our granddaughter coming in July will be Bowie. Bowie. Yeah. Cool. Like David Bowie. I guess. Those are very great names. Like those are very unique, strong names. It might, it sounds cool to us, but I'm just wondering if you grow up and you're saying my name is Mordecai and stuff like that. Like, do you like that? I don't know. It sounds cool to us, but Morty? I really you get called Morty. Morty. Exactly. So you're going to be shortened to Morty. Then you may not like your name if you don't like the, the shortened version Morty. I think that's people who have, um, like I name my kids very, I would call them run-of-the-mill names. Like, yeah. you can't mistake them. They are Gina. They are Jake. Yeah. They want to name their kids unusual names. And I keep saying to them, don't do it, man. Don't no, do it. Don't do it. They're going to have to explain that for the rest of their life. Like, They're going to have you- to spell it or tell you how to pronounce it. To everybody. Yeah. yeah I know. I know. This is such a big thing. When you have kids and you're picking a name, I didn't realize what a big deal it is. Or people Huge. reserving names and stuff like that. And then you Huge. judge. Yeah. Right? You judge. As soon as you hear what a relative's name their child, you go, really? Or if is it that- works with the last name. That's, That's a big, a big, big deal. <laughs> what was your favorite on this list? Either Nameberry or Name.org. What uh, did you like the most? To be honest, I really like, uh, I kind of like Aurora. I think that's a very pretty, unusual name. I do love it. Yeah, it's very pretty. And uh, I kind of watched a couple of clips of Sleeping Beauty trying to find them saying Aurora. And I, I've no. never met anyone named Aurora. So Aurora is very, very pretty. pretty. I also liked Amelia. Mm, that was on yeah, the list. Yeah. Charlotte's been popular for a while. That's on yeah. the list there. And Henry was on the list of boys' names. I love the name Henry. I wonder if we'll see um, at 2019, if we'll see the name start to change with popularity when the Duke and Duchess of Sussex have their first child and they pick a name. Because usually we see a bump in popularity depending on what name they choose. Exactly. All right, I'm going to ask people out there, what is the most unusual baby name that you've come across, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's probably some really good ones out there. There's some very good celebrity ones out there. All right, email (laughs) me, simmy at cknw.com. Thank you for that, Claire. We are talking some baby names uh, with the list out for the most popular baby names so far for 2019. Wasn't quite prepared to have this happen, but boy, did we ever get inundated with the baby names topic that we had earlier. So our contributor, Claire Allen, was with us, or should I call her Stacy? <laughs> Please, no. Because that's what her <laughs> dad wanted to name her before she was born, uh, and was talking about the most popular baby names of 2019 so far. There were some really good ones on there. Then I got so many emails. Check this one out here, Claire. Uh, Tony emailed me to tell me about the founder of the Learjet company, Bill Lear, who mm-hmm. named his daughter Shanda. Chandelier. (laughs) See, she had to say it out loud. I was say, say it out loud. I had two emails from people in the Metro Vancouver area who tell me they know of somebody, a friend of theirs. This is two different people Mm -hmm. who named their son Legendary. See, I mean, I had one earlier and I got another one after that. It's a strange name, but I need to hear what the last names are. But what I want to know is, is this the same kid? Oh, yeah. Or is it the two people who emailed me about the same kid? Or are there actually two kids named Legendary out there in Metro Vancouver? Wow, that's an interesting name. That's a lot to live up to. Uh, Like, what if you're just meh? What if you're just, like, boring? (laughs) And you're not legendary? You're not legendary. That is a lot to live up to. Uh, I had somebody who emailed me and said, I had a friend, a friend had a son named Raiden after the Japanese God of Thunder. I could top that. My daughter went to daycare with a Raiden, so I know that as well. Uh, Let's see. Robin wrote me to say, I've come across some interesting and unique names through work. My favorites are Dante, Beauclair, Enoch, which is E-N-O-C-H, 
and Sullivan. Sullivan is a first name. Interesting. Uh, interesting. And, and then one of my favorites is Rafael, who wrote me to say, we named our daughter Summer, mm-hmm. thinking it would be a unique name. Now there are four Summers around her age on the small island we live on. And uh, when we were discussing the name Summer, I said, uh, growing up watching much music, there was a DJ named Rainbow. Rainbow Sun Franks. I went to journalism <laughs> school with a Sunshine. 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 I know. Uh, I mean, you got to be really upbeat for your name to be Sunshine. You do. Uh, We were talking about how difficult it is for people sometimes to have an unusual name, like this listener who called us. Listen, you don't want a crazy, crazy weird name. My name's Marcello. Do you have any idea? Every every year of my elementary school, Marcello, Marcello, Martello, Marcello, Marcello. Nobody ever gets it right. You don't want it. There's a lot of pain behind that. You could tell, right? Yeah. There's a lot of it. Earlier in the show, I said I wish my name wasn't Claire and I wish I had like a name that could be shortened. But then you're right. Maybe I wouldn't want to be teased on the playground if I had a different name. I understand you called your mother about this. Yes, I did. So uh, after when the break, when we went to break at the last time I was on talking about baby names, I told you about what my name could have been. and Stacy and Marizona. Yes. And what my name, my brother could have had. My brother's name is Quinn. And my mom will reveal in this clip what my dad specifically, his plans for the names of his children. So I called her up and asked, hey, mom, can you give me the rundown of what these unconventional names could have been? So here you go. So for the first few weeks of your life, there was no Claire. There was a Stacy. We were going to call you Stacy. It was your dad's idea. And Finally, one day, I started crying and saying, I can't call her Stacy. Stacy is an American blonde cheerleader. So uh, he agreed, fine, you could be Claire. So it was sort of a default thing. But he did have some other backup names for you. Your dad loved Marty Robbins, and Marty Robbins' wife's name was Marizona. He wanted to call you Marizona, which as best I could understand was Mary of the Arid Zone. So when we were going back and forth about this, and trust me, there was a lot of arm wrestling, I agreed to Marizona on the provision that all subsequent children were going to be named Utah or Malaska. So eventually we defaulted. You became Claire. Everybody's been happy with it ever since. And you were named Claire for a reason, because we wanted you to be clear, to know what you wanted and to know how to get it. Ah, very nice. And what about my brother? <laughs> ah, Quinn. So Quinn was the second child, and being as I had one round one, dad was going to make this real tough on me. So he gave me a list. And on the list, first on the list, was Elvis. And then Storm. And then Shaquille. After the basketball (laughs) player? (laughs) After the basketball player. And I just couldn't agree to any of this. And fourth on the list was Quinn, which meant, I believe, Dark Stranger. So we settled on Quinn only because I, under no circumstances, was going to be standing on some playing field yelling, go Shaquille, or <laughs> at a boy, storm, or even worse, Elvis. Yeah, Elvis. <laughs> you know, Elvis would have left the building every morning to go to preschool. <laughs> okay, that's great. Oh my gosh. I personally think your parents should have gone with Shaquille. Shaquille, Shaquille Allen? Allen? Great that's name. horrible. Especially Elvis when you meet people named Elvis and you're like, that's so weird. Hey, I can only, it works I can for only pi- I know. That's the only person it worked for because I can only picture Elvis Presley in my mind. Oh, man. That is hilarious. So you were so close. I can't believe you were actually Stacy for the first couple of weeks of your life. Yeah. Yeah. And then they changed it. And thank God they didn't go with Marizona. I have a cousin who was went by a di- well, not her choice, but she was called a different name for the first 
two years of her life. That's and then they decided that doesn't really suit her. It was Ramona, and then they had to go back and switch it on the birth certificate. They like, changed, or changed it. her name legally. They changed her name because they were like, "No, we don't like that," and changed it. Wow. Yeah. I feel like after two years, you just live with it. You'd no, be like, well, no. I guess this is what I've done. They decided they were not going to do that. Uh, one more clip here, too. We also have another listener who knows a friend that stuck their kid with a pretty unique name. When I was back on the East Coast, the last name was his name was Day, so he had his son, and he named him Yester. Yester Day, so that'd be an awful name to stick no. with a kid, eh? <laughs> no. No, so I don't believe funny. it. So my fiance is going to kill me without I tell the story. Tell it, tell it, tell it, tell it. <laughs> so his last name is Dat, D-H-A-T-T. And I said that if we have children, we have to name the first one Disson for Disson Dat. <laughs> Crack myself up. He doesn't find it as funny. No, see? Now you've turned into your dad. And I know, he's gonna right? have to play the role like, of your mother. Blasphemous names for children. <laughs> Just horrible. Oh my gosh. This is a very significant day in Canadian history. And maybe you don't know about it. But it was on this day in 1917 that four Canadian divisions Divisions began an assault on Vimy Ridge in northeastern France. And that moment, that battle has been forever enshrined in Canadian history since. And we are going to talk about why that is. What is so important about this day? Joining me now is Honorary Major Cameron Cathcart, Chair of the Vancouver Vimy Day Committee and President of the Royal United Services Institute in Vancouver. Cameron, thank you for joining us. Welcome. I thank you very, very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's talk about Vimy Ridge. You think... like. Describe to us what happened. Why do you think it is so significant to Canadian history? Well, first of all, it was the first time that the Canadian Army at the time, the Canadian Expeditionary Force, fought as one unit. Up to that point, they'd always worked with the British uh, Army, and they were under the command of the British Army. But this was the very first time that the Canadian Army at that time uh, was under the command of a single Canadian general, Sir Arthur Currie of Victoria. So recognized as a separate entity unto itself. Right. First time ever, actually, and uh, in wartime. And uh, later on, of course, it became uh, synonymous, if you will, with that Canadian de- desire to succeed and, and, to, uh, and show the valor and sacrifice that they did. How did Canadians distinguish themselves on that day? They distinguished themselves very, very well, actually, because, uh, you know, uh, 102 years ago today, it was Easter Monday, and uh, in sleet and snow, uh, they uh, uh, went up this ridge, huge ridge. There was thousands of them, 100,000. And um, out of that number, about a little over 3,600 were killed. Well over 7,000 were wounded. And um, it was a success ultimately within three days. It took them three days to take the ridge completely from the enemy. But prior to that... Uh, for weeks in advance, the uh, Canadian pilots were flying with the Royal Flying Corps, and they were doing aerial reconnaissance, and they pinpointed enemy positions and things of this nature. And in that regard, uh, 200 of these fragile aircraft were shot down, actually, during really? two weeks, yes. So it's not just Army, if you will, it's Air Force as well. And also, uh, within the Army, they have, a, of course, artillery. And the artillery regiments of the day, they had about a 1,000 guns of all various sizes and range. And they just hammered the ridge for about mm, two or three weeks in advance. Then the attack took place on Easter Monday. And um, the rest, as they say, is history. But on the other hand, uh, uh, there's been a various, uh, you know, degrees of, of, of honor in, in terms of, of what, what happened and, and the legacy that it has uh, 
left with us in Canada. That's what I was wondering. So you talk about how significant that was that the first time Canadians were fighting as Canadians. Did that change then how the other groups, the other countries, soldiers looked at them? Initially, it certainly did, and it also gave the Canadian Army and the Canadian government of the day uh, an impetus to, uh, to become in, involved in the, the Treaty of Versailles, which at the time, uh, Canadians were kind of part of the British Empire, of right. course. Right, take a and, seat behind us, we're yeah, over here at right. this table, yeah. Exactly. And, oh, by the way, if you want to come, fine, but don't say anything. <laughs> yeah, like kids, uh, essentially. That's right. Uh, so, but Sir Robert Borden, who was then the Prime Minister of Canada, did in fact have a seat at the uh, Treaty of Versailles, the, the, the negotiations that went on in 1919. And um, that, that helped us as a country to uh, be recognized ultimately, ultimately, in 1931 in the Statue of Westminster when we were basically given our own independence in terms of foreign affairs and things of that nature. But that's it's, another story. <laughs> well, it's so interesting, though, because it's all tied together when you look at sort of what happened to the British Empire during that time. Because, you know, Canada got that distinction but did other colonies get that distinction? I mean, India also fought in the First World War, did not get that kind of distinction. Right. The The Indian Army of the day were, were led by British officers, not Indian officers, and they fought very, very valiantly and huge sacrifices on the Western Front in the First World War. I don't believe that they were ever recognized as individual as an individual country within yeah. that in that context. Australians did extremely well. They were very very brave, of course, and New Zealanders as well. And in northwestern Europe, or in northwestern France, you'll see uh, monuments of a similar nature to Vimy uh, of for the Australians, huge monument, and also, as well the New Zealanders. But the the standout monument, if I can put it that way is uh, the Vimy Memorial. Now, it's I've un- heard that. I've it's seen, unbelievable. It's I saw some pictures of it this mm-hmm. morning, and you've been there. Yes, I've been there three times, uh, very luckily. And uh, I was there uh, the second time in 2007 when the monument was rededicated after about five or six years of restoration. Huge, costly endeavor, but it was well worth it. And what is it like? Can you describe it, Captain? It's, um, it's overwhelming, uh, to be quite frank with you. It's quite overwhelming. It sits out on its own on this great plain at the top of the plain. It's just at the top of the ridge. And um, you can walk out there and you can't help but be have this great feeling of pride, but also it's kind of awesome, if you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah. I hate to use that term, but it is. Um, it's awe-inspiring, put it that way. And uh, it's not... It's not a monument as such to individuals. It's a monument to our country, really. As well, uh, you last weekend were uh, doing the Vimy Ridge ceremonies at Mountain View as well. That happens every year. Every year we have it at the Mountain View Cemetery in Vancouver. And um, it's basically turned into uh, an Army Cadet Parade. Uh, The Army Cadets have uh, adopted Vimy Day as their day of recognition. And so, as a result of that, they take a very uh, prominent point within the... It's organized by our committee, but the cadets are very much involved. There's about 400 cadets that uh, came on Sunday, and they paraded. They did a beautiful job. They're all very marvelous young people and uh, all sort of, if you will, uh, future leaders of our country. And um, we have very... It's a very simple ceremony. We have a, 
uh, cadets line up behind the gravestones of, um, of the uh, Commonwealth War Graves section within the Mountain View Cemetery. There's about 385 graves there, by the way, of World War I veterans, all within the age of, say, between 19 and 25, 26, who died of injuries after they returned home. Right. And uh, also they were... They were victims of the uh, flu pandemic of 1919. But anyway, um, the cadets will stand behind the headstones, and at a given point, they'll place a small Canadian flag at the at oh, the base of the, of the stone. Very nice. And uh, then we have a very brief uh, ceremony, um, last post, uh, etc. Uh, one minute of silence, and then the laying of um, about a dozen wreaths. And uh, it's a very simple ceremony, and it's, it's, nice. it's attended by a lot of people. Uh, it's been more than 100 years. I mean, this year is 102 years since Vimy Ridge. Are we doing a good job in remembering, Cameron, or can we do better? We probably can do better. You know, um, it's, it's a factor that uh, relates, I think, if I can say so, to our uh, to our. Uh, school uh, curriculum. I think that more has to be done, and I think everybody would agree with this. Everyone has to have more an intense um, memory of, of, of the country's history. And I think more has to be done at the school levels with regard. But having said that, <clears throat> excuse me, the Vimy Foundation of Canada is doing a great job in trying to extend the understanding and the significance of Vimy to uh, to the youth of our country as well, and through the cadet corps, as I just right. mentioned as well. It's, being, it, it's, it's helping. Right. But, you know, I've got to say this, if you don't mind me saying so. Um, in many ways, Vimy, the Battle of Vimy Ridge is only known in Canada as the Battle of Vimy Ridge, believe it or not. Really? Yes. Um, most, most others don't even know it happened because, frankly, it was a significant factor within the war at that time. But the war didn't end until at least a year and a half later, maybe almost two years later. And the thing about, it was a factor within the, within the general uh, conduct of the war, but it wasn't a huge, it wasn't a, a defining moment. It wasn't like a decisive moment. battle. It was, it, was not a, it was a decisive battle at that time. For us, yes. And for us as Canadians. But beyond that, it, it was just part of the larger picture, if I can right. put it that way. And within Canada, we've not forgotten. That is certain, you know, we as a, as a society haven't forgotten. But on the other hand, nobody else really pays much attention to it. Right. It's kind of a myth in a way, uh, but it's, it's real. And it's, it's, a, it's a strong legend. And it's, a, it's part of our great history. All the more reason why we should be remembering it. So I thank you for joining us today to talk about this. I hope I didn't talk too much. No, you didn't. You <laughs> talked just right. That is Honorary Major Cameron Cathcart, Chair of the Vancouver Vimy Day Committee and President of the Royal United Services Institute in Vancouver. If you get a chance today, do a little reading up on Vimy Ridge so you know your Canadian history. Well, April is Parkinson's Awareness Month, and in a couple of days, it's going to be World Parkinson's Day. So this is a good time to talk about the awful effect that this debilitating illness can have on so many people. We wanted to tell some of those stories right now. So we're going to get some help from our next guest here. We have our very own Larry Gifford, our boss. He has been living with Parkinson's disease since August of 2017, 
And since that happened, he, since he got that diagnosis, though, he's become an ambassador for Parkinson's awareness. Do you think that's a good word for it, Larry? Sure, yeah. An ambassador for Parkinson's awareness? I've been called worse. Well, this is a good thing. <laughs> uh, you've also got the RTDNA-nominated Best Podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's. You recently took on a role as an official ambassador for the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Yeah, I'm on their patient council, so nice. it's really, really cool. We also have Gene Blake with us, the CEO of the Parkinson's Society of BC. Gene, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. It's wonderful to be here. What's it like to have so many ambassadors out there like Larry doing this work now, raising awareness? Uh, it's fabulous because this disease for a long time was very misunderstood. So people like Larry are really bringing a different level of understanding and awareness about the disease. Larry, what's it been like for you then? So a year and a half since you got your diagnosis. Well, that's the thing. You, you know, you, I've lived with it for probably ten years. Mm, yeah. uh, but I only have known what it is for the last, you know, you know, eighteen to you know twenty months. Um, it's 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 been quite a journey. Uh, I feel like I I'm an expert now and a lot of things. You know, I, I've, I'm learning a whole new language. You know, alpha synuclein and <laughs> you're becoming dopa. a scientist. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like I and, and having these conversations with the researchers and the neurologists and, and really taking control of my own healthcare has been really important. Yeah, uh, and, and realizing that I don't have a doctor's appointment. The doctor has an appointment with me, and I'm going to get out of it as much as I can. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that I as I go around talking to people. They're, you know, that that's one element of this disease where they, they feel like they're not empowered, that they it's a very lonely disease. And so uh, I encourage everybody to just get out there and take control of their own health care, have a list of questions and a list of symptoms that you want to yeah. know about and, and really, uh, you know, don't be shy. Gene, do you think that's changing then? Um, Larry called it like it's a lonely disease mm-hmm. that people before probably felt like they couldn't talk about their symptoms. Is that changing? Uh, to some degree it is. I think our motto has always been you're not alone because the society's been there. But we've really worked hard uh, with people like Larry's input to change our focus to empowerment, uh, really for empowering people to take more control, self-management, self-advocacy. Um, I mean, it's still very dependent on medication for controlling symptoms, but there is uh, one big, big thing that people can do, and that is exercise. And so, particularly in the early to mid stages of this disease, I think that has really been uh, quite a recent, actually. Yeah. Oh, it is. Uh, I, was, I, I think before you thought that, oh, you have to rest to feel better. They'd send you home. They'd yeah. send you home to rest. And so it's really probably the last five to 10 years, particularly about uh, four years ago, there was a really groundbreaking study that said that uh, exercise, um, there's some uh, conditions around that, but that exercise could even help you to delay the progression of this it's disease. It's actually the only thing they can recommend yeah. that will delay the progression really? of the disease. Yeah. What's and, it done for you? Because I know that you've been doing this. You actually went to boxing class as well. Well, and circuit training. I hate exercise, uh, but I, I'm <laughs> That's doing so it. honest. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, um, I've never been a physical guy. My brothers were athletes. My sister was an athlete. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'll What's, come watch you. Yeah. Uh, and, and so for me, it, it's been really hard, but it, it's about finding a routine and finding the exercise that works for me. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I've done the boxing class. I enjoy the boxing class, but, you know, I'm, I'm working a full-time job and I have a family. So I've got to find the classes that are available to me on my time. Yeah. Uh, I can't go to the 10 a.m. boxing class for Parkinson's all the time. So I've got six o'clock circuit training on Wednesdays. And so I, I find what do. I can do. Uh, and then, I, you know, on Saturdays we go for a family hike or whatever. And we, so I'm just working it into my life. Mm-hmm. So I'm living, you know, I, it's, I don't have 
you know, Larry time and Parkinson's time. We're, we're together in this for the rest of my life. So we got to figure out how to live together. Yeah. What kind of a difference has it made? Like, can you feel an improvement from the more exercise that you do? Uh, absolutely. It's the combination of the levodopa carbidopa, which is the medication that replaces my, uh, creates synthetic dopamine, which allows me to improve my movements. And then with, with the, with the exercise, I, I have much more control over my fine motor skills. I have more balance. I, you know, I, uh, my gait is improving. And you're doing this also along with seeing the physical therapist and you know, making sure that you're taking your medication properly and making sure you go to you know, s- support group and making sure you go to your counselor. Like You've got a team of people yeah. around you that are helping you in, in a number of different ways. I wonder then, Gene, listening to Larry talk like that about living with Parkinson's, is that changing then people's expectations of what it means to live with Parkinson's. It's not just sitting and waiting for your body to let go. Yes. Yeah, I would say that um, people uh, are working harder to take control of their own lives. And as they see uh, some of those symptoms get better controlled, then, of course, they have higher expectations that their life is going to be uh, better quality in other ways, too. So, for example, we know that there are only a couple of things as this disease advances that will help people maintain that quality of life on a a treatment uh, uh, level. And so we've had uh, two really incredible advocacy campaigns over the last couple of years to get better access to something called deep brain stimulation and another therapy called duodopa therapy that weren't uh, as easily accessible here in BC previously. And right. a lot of that was just the voice of people like Larry and other folks uh, with Parkinson's and their families and friends that added their voice to the campaigns. Now, I've heard about this deep brain stimulation. Mm-hmm. Now, what, is this, what does this involve? Well, so they actually go in and they put you know, electric stimulators on in the area of your brain, in the center of your brain, uh, and then they attach it to a wire and you have sort of like a built-in, like a, it's kind of like if they put in a heart. Like a, pace, like a, a defibrillator for your brain. Yeah, and so they can put stimulations in there, to, which it's life-changing for people. Uh, and it's mainly meant to, to help with tremors uh, because some people have just extreme tremors. Uh, and um, it, it's, it's so necessary, and the access is so weak here in BC. I know it's getting better, it's, but, it's, but it's still not. So yeah. the surgeries are doubling, yeah. but there's still a, a long wait to even just get, get assessed. Get assessed, yeah. and yeah. we need to work on that. We we need more dollars uh, into this because the, there's a, there's a wait list of over a hundred people who need this surgery now. Right, and in five years, I may be on that list. Who yeah. knows? You know, I can't believe how much things have changed, though, listening to you talk about this. Because my dad had Parkinson's as well, and he passed away more than a year ago. And none of this was available or talked mm. about for him when he was first yeah. diagnosed like 15 years ago when that happened. Well, DBS is only for a very small number of people. Uh, not everybody is going to need it, and not everybody would qualify for it. But uh, when you know that there's something out there that can help you, right. it's of course, the possibilities, you, you, you want right? to have access to it. So we're very fortunate. The government did approve a doubling of the surgeries going from 36 to 72. It just started in this fiscal year, April 1. And uh, we also understand that they're in the process of recruiting a second neurosurgeon. So we're very, very thankful and grateful for, for that. Yes, there's certainly more to do. <laughs> there, there's never quite enough, right? But that's been wonderful. And then the duodopa therapy is a way that, uh, okay, there's motility issues with this disease. Yes. Uh, dopamine controls movement, whether it's the large motor muscles or uh, inside your body. So the gut motility gets affected. So taking a an oral medication 
it might not actually right. go to where it needs to. So duodopa therapy is, a, again, um, another process where they do uh, um, direct uh, insertion into the small intestine. Right. Okay. So on this, uh, well, since it is Parkinson's Awareness Month, we've got World Parkinson's Day coming up then in a couple of days. Larry, what do you want people to know about Parkinson's? Uh, that, you know, many of the symptoms are invisible. Everybody mm. thinks of a tremor. And that not everybody with Parkinson's has a tremor. Uh, you know, mine started with gait issues, but there's so many just there's probably over 40 non-motor issues that are involved uh, in most Parkinson's, you know, from depression and anxiety uh, to, you know, uh, you know, Gene, you can jump in here, but uh, gut health issues. And pain, fatigue. Pain, uh, pain, lots of pain, lots yeah. of fatigue. You know, you know I've got, uh, I was just diagnosed with some neur- neuropathy in my feet, you know, like. It's like always you, something. It's always something. And, yeah. and, and so you see somebody in their 40s who's having troubles and, you know, you, they, you may think they're drunk walking down the street or you know i does that I, happen to you because you're in your 40s sure yeah it, it, i have poles now so now people it's a physical sign that so they know something's up so if i'd ride the bus and i i want a seat because i can't balance very well if i didn't have my poles and i've it's been there you get stares and glares and you mm-hmm. get people tell you to move make room for other people you know understand that you're not going to see everybody's disability yeah such a good point that is yeah. so true that's probably one of the biggest one uh in the years that I've been working with people with this disease, it's uh, still there is misunderstanding, uh, lack of knowledge, and so it results in discrimination sometimes with our folks. They think they're drunk. Or, yeah, and insomnia oh. is a huge deal. And if you don't get enough sleep, it can ruin your whole. Well, that's day. everything, right? Yeah, yeah, that is everything. Well, then this is a good month to learn about all that, isn't it? And and, and let me just say, the Parkinson Society of BC has been so great to me. They were my first phone call when I got diagnosed, and really? they've been very supportive. They're celebrating 50 years this year. Thank and it's uh, just an amazing organization. Gene, where can people get more information? So we have a wonderful website. They just need to go online and look for that, parkinson.bc.ca. Uh, we also have a 1-800 line. Uh, we do information referral. Uh, we have uh, actually quite an um, incredible cadre of services, including clinical counseling. There's lots of up and downs with this disease. Yeah. That's free. Uh, we do educational programs. People are welcome to go online and see what we've got. We record a lot of our sessions too, right. so there is a whole library of uh, information people can go back and, and have a look or listen to. Well, thanks to both of you for being here today. Thanks, Amy. That is Jean Blake, CEO of Parkinson Society of BC. You can check out their website as well as Larry Gifford, host of When Life Gives You Parkinson's, which you can find wherever you get your favorite podcast. When is season two? Season two is in the fall, but we have uh, new episodes coming out Wednesday and Thursday of this week. So a special bonus Thursday for World Parkinson's Day. All right. Check that out wherever you find your podcast.